It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's one of the most extraordinary stories I've ever covered, at least in the sedate world of Swiss banking. Patrick Lane is now one of The Economist's senior editors, but in 2019, he was the paper's banking editor. It was September 2019, and Iqbal Khan and his wife had just dropped their six-year-old son at football training in Herlebeg, on the shores of Lake Zurich. Khan, who was 43 at the time, had just quit as the head of Credit Suisse's wealth management division. He was on gardening leave before joining UBS, the bank's bigger local rival. The couple were making the most of Khan's newfound time off, and they headed into Zurich to do some shopping. But as they followed the lake shoreline north to the city, Khan noticed he was being tailed. Or at least that's what the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, a German newspaper, reported at the time. He tried and failed to lose his tail, and he eventually stopped the car in central Zurich and got out, which led to a confrontation with the men in the car. That was behind the Swiss National Bank, according to the FT. It turned out that his pursuers were private investigators, hired by Credit Suisse. His old employer was worried he was going to try and take clients to his new one. Up next, the Credit Suisse spy drama continues to unfold. The tabloid scandal has exploded into a threat to the CEO, Tijen TM. We'll bring you that story next. It was yet another blow for Credit Suisse, which had been in pretty poor shape for some time. It was then under the leadership of Tijan Tiam, who'd taken the helm in 2015 and was trying to steer the bank in a new direction, with a bigger role, as it happens, for Mr Khan's speciality, wealth management. And even though Tiam denied any knowledge of the spying scandal, it eventually led to his being pushed out. First to some breaking news overnight as the CEO of embattled bank Credit Suisse resigns amid that spying scandal. CNBC's Villain Marks is joining us live from London on this. What a story. What a story, Villain. Talk to us. Now, this wasn't by any means the only recent scandal at the 167-year-old bank, or even the most damaging. But it was the most dramatic, until it was eclipsed by the events of last weekend. On Sunday, Credit Suisse finally crumbled and rival UBS was forced to buy the failed bank in a deal that could reunite Iqbal Khan and some of his former colleagues. Its collapse makes it the latest and by far the biggest bank to fail in just two weeks. What is wrong with the global banking system? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Seattle, I'm Alice Fulwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Kuala Lumpur, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, what just happened to Credit Suisse? First, 
we'll hear what's going wrong with the global banking system. Sadly, every 15 years it appears, but certainly once too often, you do get a major strike. Then we'll look at the responses to the unfolding crisis. Silicon Valley Bank was not systemic in life, but proved to be systemic in death. Finally, we'll ask where the crisis could spread next. Mike, Tom, hello. Hi, Alice. Hey, Alice. Mike, what are you doing in Malaysia? Just hanging out, just a short trip. I always think Singapore is so small that you've got to get out fairly regularly. And I think the trip to KL is about the same as a trip from London to Leeds, in my mind. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll be back in not too long. You are in Washington State rather than DC this week. Are you on the trail of another bank that's about to collapse? No, I actually came to Seattle for a sort of long-planned story on the state of the housing market, which uh, may look slightly different after the events of the past couple of weeks than that it did even before. But um, given where the banking crisis is spreading, California last week, Switzerland the next, you never know where it might go next. Well, it's an interesting point, Alice. I'm not sure how many people would have guessed that the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, a mid-sized bank in California, would have brought down a household name like Credit Suisse, how do you draw a line from one to the other? Yeah, it's a bit like that sort of aphorism that people trot out about how a sort of butterfly flaps its wings in uh, Mexico and a hurricane hits Hawaii or whatever. But it is curious that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank did sort of spread across to continental Europe in the way that it did, because there's no sort of real overlap between the specific risk-taking that felled Silicon Valley Bank and sort of what was going on at Credit Suisse. They were sort of doing quite different things, sort of ultimately were their undoing. I mean, the sort of backdrop to all of this is that policymakers have raised rates sort of sharply higher over the past year all around the world to deal with inflation. The Fed just raised rates by 25 basis points again on March 22nd. The ECB raised rates by 50 basis points a week ago. And tighter financial conditions sort of all around the world are going to start to pick off the weak in financial institutions and in the financial system. So in the US, you saw some banks that had sort of overly exposed themselves to crypto, like Silvergate and Signature sort of go under. You saw Silicon Valley Bank, which was doing sort of very imprudent risk management with its exposure to interest rate debt being picked off. And it's sort of well known that when runs start at various banks, they can sort of cause runs at others. And in the case of Credit Suisse, it was facing roughly $10 billion a day of outflows. So it was facing a run. It had been losing deposits actually for months. And the reason people might have sort of picked on Credit Suisse or started running from Credit Suisse is it's just been such a problem child of global banking for some time that people have really sort of lost faith in the institution. Yeah, this whole thing has people sort of jumping around to try and find the right analogy. You know, if you're really worried about it, you're worrying about this being like, the global financial crisis in 2008, there's been people comparing the situation with the sort of rapid interest rate hikes to the savings alone crises in the 1980s. It's fair to say, though, that Credit Suisse has looked vulnerable for some time now. Beyond the spying scandal that we heard about at the beginning of the show, which still blows my mind, there was the Arkegos Capital scandal. If you don't remember, that was a collapse of the family office Arkegos, which Credit Suisse had huge exposure to lost about $5.5 billion as a result. There was the Greensill scandal, which is the collapse of the supply chain finance company that Credit Suisse has partnered with. That was losses in the billions as well. So yeah, to be fair, it's not like this came completely out of the blue. But Alice, were you taken aback at all by the speed at which it sort of unfurled? 
The thing that surprised me most is, as you say, these scandals have plagued Credit Suisse for a long time now. And there were sort of two events in March that seemed to sort of make its problems worse. One was that its one major shareholder, Harris Associates, sort of threw in the towel in early March and said that it was selling at stake. It sort of wasn't interested in Credit Suisse's turnaround anymore. And then the event that seemed to immediately precede the sort of need for this hasty deal with UBS was the Saudi National Bank, which also said it wasn't going to put any more money in in the middle of March. And I think that you know, you'd had all of these scandals unfold. And then you had these sort of two major shareholders say, you know, we've had enough, there's no more capital raising coming from us. And I think that sort of spooked people, possibly because of the sort of global mood into realising that Credit Suisse sort of really was out of options. You know, if it, it got into another pickle or scandal again, the only option for it to raise capital would be some kind of bailout or deal or resolution by regulators. But if you told me that that was what was going to happen. And it was going to happen so quickly after the Saudi National Bank made its announcement. I would have been a little surprised. Yeah. And we had this dramatic few days over the weekend where the Swiss government stepped in and effectively forced UBS, Credit Suisse's great rival, to buy the bank without any kind of shareholder vote. Why was that necessary? Yeah. So it does look as though the Swiss regulators acted quite early in the sort of potential process. And there is an incentive for them to do that. You know, if people think that a bank is sort of on the ropes and and headed for failure, so it might be facing a serious run, you know, the sooner that regulators and policymakers can act, the better. Because if you wait, it's key bankers, it's star bankers all quit, and that destroys value in the business. It's deposits flee, it might have to sell some assets, possibly in sort of fire sale to sort of meet that deposit flight. And you can get this cycle of destruction of value that will kill a bank, even if it was just like quite shaky, when you first started growing deeply concerned. And the Swiss National Bank tried to intervene with just liquidity, just saying, you know, we've looked at their balance sheet, we're going to give them some cash so that if the run accelerates, they should be able to meet those demands. And that didn't seem to be enough to restore confidence in the bank, at which point you have three options. One is that you sort of bail it out. uh, So you restore confidence by recapitalizing the bank using taxpayer or Swiss National Bank money. The second is that you resolve the institution, you sort of try to wind it down and and sell it off for, for parts or whatever. And the third is that you sell it in its entirety to a competitor. And, you know, regulators stepped in early enough that there was still some value in Credit Suisse, that they could still ask UBS essentially to sort of pay a price for it and to push very aggressively for that third option. And that's probably because the other options were so terrible, essentially, for the central bank. The prospect of resolving it is a pretty terrifying one. There are two major banks in Switzerland. It is one of them. So the prospect of sort of winding it down would probably seem unbelievably daunting. And the reason you probably didn't just want to do a sort of bailout recapitalization of Credit Suisse is probably in part because of the nature of its problems. You know, it was sort of the the sheer incompetence of its investment bank, essentially. Scandals that Mike mentioned, the Archego scandal suggests that they sort of couldn't do or weren't doing sort of basic credit risk checks and credit risk management. And then there was the scandal with Greensill, which was an investment firm that was ultimately accused of defrauding people. And that implied that maybe Credit Suisse wasn't doing robust enough checks on the people that it was doing business with. And, you know, in various ways, they had sort of fallen afoul of international laws over the past few years. And throwing taxpayer money into that sort of pit of problems and trying to let Credit Suisse carry on does seem extremely reckless. And I understand essentially why 
that by far the most palatable option was trying to sort of force this sale to UBS. One of the things that has really shaken the market as well about how this deal was structured is the sort of order in which people have been wiped out or not wiped out. Some bondholders got wiped out while shareholders actually got UBS shares in return for their Credit Suisse shares. And in a post-financial crisis world, that was not how it was really meant to work. One of the big issues this time is around cocoa bonds, contingent convertible bonds. It's a bit of a mouthful. They're also sometimes called AT1s or bail-inable bonds. They're also the source of some terrible financial journalism headlines because lots of things run with cocoa. Um, but they're bonds that were one of the big financial crisis innovations. Uh, the idea is relatively simple. You have a relatively high-yielding bond, which if the bank gets into trouble, changes into equity. Basically, it's meant to be triggered at specific moments, like when the bank's capital falls below a certain level. These will be specified in the bond's issuance documents. An investor that wants to take a little bit more risk can buy these with the knowledge that if the bank stumbles, they're going to get their high-yielding debt turned into equity, which is probably not going to be doing very well at that time. The idea was that these sort of products would help banks reduce their debts at exactly the moment when they were in the most trouble and absorb losses, and that you wouldn't have the big publicly funded bailouts that we saw during the financial crisis in 2008. And sometimes in the past, this has happened pretty much as it should. The collapse of Banco Popular, the Spanish bank in 2017, this, this all functioned pretty much as it should have done. And this isn't the first failure of 81 bonds, but Credit Suisse's zeroed 81 bonds are by far the biggest on record. It's not even close. We are talking about something in the range of sort of 5 or 6% of the total market for these assets. And regardless of what happens with the, the legal elements of this, clearly some people feel like they've not got what they expected. They thought they owned something that was senior to equity in the sort of capital structure. I've spoken to some relatively senior bankers who know this market inside and out, and they think this could be a sort of permanent black mark against the asset class, that it's really going to struggle in the future. Right. And that would be bad because the idea of these sort of bailable bonds, it's quite useful that you can sort of, uh, uh, you know, restore a bank to health as it's struggling. And one of the questions that's natural to ask is, you know, why didn't they sort of use the Cocos just to recap Credit Suisse as it got into trouble? And the answer to that is probably that it might not have worked for some of the reasons that I outlined above. Still, to get a better idea of what happened and the fallout, I spoke to Hugh Van Steenis. He used to be a senior advisor to the CEO of UBS, and he was also an advisor to Mark Carney when he was governor of the Bank of England, as well as being in the consultation when COCOs, these contingent convertible bonds, were first developed. Now he's vice chairman of Oliver Wyman, a consultancy firm. Hugh Van Steenis, welcome to Bunny Talks. Thank you very much, Alice, for having me. So over the weekend, the giant Swiss bank, Credit Suisse, was seemingly sort of forcibly bought by its arch-rival UBS. And that made it essentially the sort of fourth bank to potentially fail or need to be aggressively intervened in by regulators in less than two weeks. You've had the sort of three in America and now one in Europe. Could you just help us explain why have these banks all failed at this time? What sort of connects the institutions? So I think if we go back to the US banks, the root of the problem is the combination of 
the rapid expansion of deposits during the pandemic. There's a 5.2 trillion increase in deposits. And because of the regs, the second tier banks disproportionately got them. And then some of them unfortunately reached the top shelf. Silicon Valley in particular took a very supersized and silly rates trade, which went previously wrong for them. But I think that Credit Suisse is obviously quite different in terms of structure. But I think we're going to the phase of markets where you now start looking for the weak links and looking forensically at balance sheets. And unfortunately, CS has been weakened for some time. And unfortunately, that's why it proved to be the next domino in line. And if we are sort of going around looking for weakest links, is your perception that there is sort of a lot of weakness still that might be exposed? Or how should we think about how big and sprawling this potential crisis could get? I think the market will keep sifting away until it doesn't. So first, I think the focus will continue to look at the US mid-cap banks. I think in retrospect, it was narrow in 2018 to sort of deregulate them. There's a great book about the SNL crisis by Bill Black, and he said that the real heart of the problem was the three Ds, deregulation, desupervision, and decriminalization. And I think we got to there by having those smaller banks not being as tightly supervised, not being as tightly regulated, there's weakness. And I think there will continue to be focus. I think in Europe, you know, one should never say never. But, you know, what we learned from the Japanese banking crisis was that 15 years on, there was nothing left to really go wrong. And so I do think as I look across Europe, where there's been very little growth, there hasn't been excesses in the whole, in the European region. I would be surprised if we see major casualties because there just haven't been the excesses. I think where the market's going to be roving is where are the weaker balance sheets? Where have there been carry trades, which may now be blown out of the water by higher interest rates? And I think some of the US financials are probably where more of those excesses took place. Obviously, I think CS was somewhat of a weak link already. And the failure of all of these banks has concentrated people's minds once more on what you do with a failed institution. So can you sort of liquidate it, resolve it? Can you sell it? Do you have to bail it out or bail it in? I guess in the US, they obviously took some extraordinary measures for Silicon Valley Bank. But in Switzerland, what you saw was the use of this sort of post-crisis invention, these sort of bail-inable AT1 or cocoa bonds, whatever you want to call them, Could you just explain for listeners how those work and what role they're supposed to play in resolving these troubles institutions? I think COCOs were sort of designed as sort of catastrophe insurance on the banking system. So knocks to the bank, which happen year in, year out, should be covered through their earnings and their equity base. But the idea is that, you know, once every, I mean, sadly, every 15 years it appears, but certainly once too often, you do get a major strike. And so in a way, they were designed a bit like hurricane risk or catastrophe risk, but for the banking system. And so look, now it's embedded deeply in European rules. To be honest, the US didn't really adopt them with the same gusto that Europe did. And that's partly because the US state is richer and has deeper pockets, so can stand behind its banks, as we've seen with the banks at the moment. So the catastrophe bonds, you know, Credit Suisse had 16 billion of them. I think with catastrophe risk, the key issue is that if there is going to be a hurricane, you don't want your own taxpayers to be bailing out the institutions. And what do you think this means for the future of cocoa bonds? So first, there's this whole question of like, does it decredit the entire asset class? I'm not sure I'm, I'm that strong. The ECB, the Bank of England have already come out trying to say, look, they will respect the use of these instruments. They'll also respect the kind of the hierarchy of when they get triggered, which was one of the key questions this weekend. And so I do think they've proved to be useful. But, you know, in Switzerland, I suspect that they're going to have to be over the coming years, a little bit of tweaking of the language. And maybe it is that the smaller banks 
can't issue cocos in the future. It'll only be the big ones. So I do think there are some profound knock-ons. I don't think we've discredited the entire asset class yet. And just so that we sort of make it really clear for people who've never come across these bonds before, the idea behind them was that in the event that a bank was in deep trouble, it could trigger these bonds in some way to recapitalise itself and maybe could therefore sort of continue as a, a going concern. Have cocoa bonds been used for their original intended purpose of helping a bank survive one of these more difficult times? Or how much experience do we have with their usual functioning? Well, obviously, we are setting precedents as we speak, because these are some of the first time uses. It's clear that the original idea of Cocos was that in the event of failure or near failure of institution, and so I think the market assumed these instruments would be bailed in when an institution had failed. And if we want to get a bit technical, there are high trigger Cocos. So when a lot of bad things have happened and low trigger Cocos, when an awful lot of things have gone wrong. And so you might expect the high triggers to go first. But look, you know, in a crisis, in a catastrophe, uh, regulators sometimes do need to, you know, do what's necessary. There'll be plenty of work done in the future about whether it's the right or the wrong things to do. The most important thing for markets today is, does this have a knock-on to the way that other banks can fund themselves? Does it increase the cost and availability of funding? And I think the, the bottom line to me is, two weekends ago, the US banking failures effectively tightened US banking conditions dramatically. I think we've seen the fastest tightening of financial conditions in history. And it's as if interest rates probably just went up one to one and a half percent every weekend. I think what's just happened in Switzerland has also then tightened financial conditions in Europe too. Because if you're sitting there as a treasurer or CFO of the banks, and I've chatted to many of them, you know, they're going to be much more cautious in the weeks and months ahead. And so I think that tightening is really the key issue which markets need to now work through. Hugh Van Steeders, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you, Alice. Well, I can see why many investors in Credit Suisse's AT1 bonds are incredibly frustrated at how things have played out here, given the disconnect between where they expected their investment sat in the hierarchy of claims and how the Swiss regulators decided to structure the transaction. But now the fact that other regulators like the European Central Bank have been quite critical of the Swiss decision has just left that whole market in a cloud of uncertainty. Yeah, I always think that there's basically only two groups of people for whom the imminent aftermath of financial crises are good news. One is us, financial journalists, <laughs> and the other is corporate lawyers. And this is clearly just going to run and run. There's some very unhappy people out there that are very likely to want some litigation out of this. We should probably say that it does seem like there's some bond documentation that made it clear that this could happen. And there's a Credit Suisse presentation doing the rounds sort of explicitly showing that under their own rules that the AT1s were below equity in the capital stack. But there's lots of people who clearly didn't read the fine print on this one and presumed it was much of a muchness. I have no conception of how that will all play out in the courts, but that's very much where it's likely to end up. On the one hand, if you buy an instrument that's designed to be obliterated in the case of a banking crisis, you have sort of opened yourself up to this possibility. And the fact that equity wasn't wiped out wasn't going to save these guys from absolutely gargantuan losses anyway. It's also noteworthy that in the debate over the equity being zeroed, had that discussion held up a deal for even a few days, 
you might well have seen Credit Suisse get nationalized. And in that case, the 81s, these cocoa bonds are definitely going to zero anyway. And it's probably going to be even more chaotic and you're going to have even more creditors wiped out. So maybe the, the Swiss regulator has some sort of duty here, even if it means fiddling with people's perception of what's the natural order of capital to fix it regardless. It's a mess, basically. It's a huge mess. Yeah, and I do have some sympathy for those who think they've been a bit duped, but it is easy to suggest that bondholders were being paid that sort of juicy 9.5% coupon for a reason. There's a great saying by one of PIMCO's, the sort of massive bond funds, uh, legendary fund managers, which is, the road to hell is paved with a positive carry. So uh, I think the Coco bondholders and Credit Suisse have definitely learned that this week. Well, this week we have... Another edition of the paper, which is packed full of detail on this banking crisis and its implications for the wider economy. But beyond the world of finance, I'm also looking forward to our coverage of China's increasingly active role in global politics. That's linked to one of the other big news stories from this week, which was Xi Jinping's visit to Russia to meet with Vladimir Putin, signaling the increasing strength of the bonds between those two autocracies. What about you, Mike? What are you looking forward to this week? Yeah, actually, the story that I'm really looking forward to reading about this week is sort of related to China's role in the world. And it's about the relationship between India and Japan, which I find really, really fascinating. Um, I think it's going to be a huge story in Asia for sort of decades to come. Japan, obviously, both a big foreign investor and India, a big potential location of foreign investment for Japan. But they're also two countries that find themselves sort of very exposed to their relationship with China and their worries about China's sort of strength in Asia and in large part the sort of inability of the US potentially to sort of play the role of protector all the time. Yeah, so I'm really interested in, in reading a little bit more about that. To read those pieces and the rest of our coverage, you will need to be a subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes to this episode. After the break, we will hear from the man who advised the Treasury Secretary in the immediate aftermath of the last financial crisis on where the current crisis is going next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Alice, before the break, we heard how the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank led somewhat unexpectedly, to the demise of Credit Suisse. So where to from here? What do you think the fallout is going to be from Credit Suisse's collapse? So our previous guest, Hugh Vanstinus, was pretty sanguine about the rest of Europe. He seemed to think that the problems at Credit Suisse were sort of relatively idiosyncratic to that bank, and that in part because regulators in Europe have been sort of much stricter with small banks, big banks in general, with regulation in the sort of post-global financial crisis era, that maybe they would be all right. 
he was more concerned about actually sort of the ways in which the American crisis might rumble on. So he likened it to the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, in which you saw more than a thousand banks in the US fail over the course of just under a decade. And then, of course, the sort of other crisis that everyone is reaching to compare this one to is the sort of 2008 global financial crisis. And to sort of hear about whether this American sort of banking crisis might look like either of those or like something new entirely. I spoke to Richard Berner, who goes by Dick. He's experienced a banking crisis from both sides. He was co-head of global economics at Morgan Stanley during the financial crisis before he moved over to advise the Treasury Secretary. Now he's a professor at NYU's Stern Business School. Dick Berner, welcome to Money Talks. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So we talked on the show last week about the sort of many ways in which Silicon Valley Bank was unique. So the sort of high level of uninsured deposits and a particular exposure to the duration risk associated with withholding long dated bonds. Those don't appear to be the same idiosyncrasies that have felled Credit Suisse over the weekend. So how do you explain why you've seen sort of these two relatively major bank failures in quick succession? What's driving this? I think the common thread, Alice, between these two is that we saw a failure of risk management and we saw a failure of supervision on both sides. And I think that there are some principles of risk management that have been overlooked in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and in the case of Credit Suisse. They are different, but Nonetheless, the overarching framework is that risk managers need to focus on all risks. They need to bring them to the attention of management, and management needs to decide what to do about those risks. You can't make money if you don't take risk, but at the same time, you need to understand that there are certain risks you don't want to take, and that you need to understand whether or not you're being compensated for the risk that you're taking. I think that's true in both cases. On the supervisory front, it's pretty clear that in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, supervisors were telling, at least by press reports, Silicon Valley Bank, that there were matters needing attention for quite some time. By any really objective measure, Silicon Valley Bank seemed to be insolvent last year, but the regulators and the supervisors really didn't do what they should have done about it. In the case of Credit Suisse, the risks were different, the behavior was different, but Credit Suisse was taking risks in certain ventures, uh, Greensill, Archegos, and finally, when Credit Suisse's supporters said, we're not putting any more money in, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. What should we think about what this means for whether or if this crisis will deepen and spread, either in the US or in Europe? In the case of the U.S., we've seen a lot of the trouble centering around so-called mid-sized banks. And it is certainly the case that back in 2018, a law was passed and implementation by the Fed and other regulators extended the reach of that law by relaxing regulations and by relaxing supervision, to be candid about it, for many of those banks, thinking that those banks with assets between $100 billion and $250 billion were not systemic. But obviously what we found was that in exercising the systemic risk exception, as it was put so elegantly, Silicon Valley Bank was not systemic in life, but proved to be systemic in death. 
And I think that that kind of regulatory uncertainty is not something that serves the system well. And I think that the lesson here is that regulators, like it or not, when they make statements about what they plan to do in the event of trouble, they should carry through with that. In the case of Credit Suisse, the risks taken were very different, but they threatened the franchise. And the regulators and the supervisors clearly tolerated those things and believed that, you know, in Switzerland, there were two major banks and probably having only one was maybe not a good idea. But what should have been done was to make sure that both of them were safe and sound and both of them engaged in fundamentally sound business practices. And that was not the case. If we take a step back and try to compare the sort of ways in which banks are going wrong now to the sort of last big banking crisis, are there any sort of major similarities or or differences you want to sort of touch upon? I, I know that you were working in government at that time. So how do you think the crisis interventions now differ from what you were doing last time around? I would say that what we're seeing now is more like the SNL crisis in the United States than it was the 2007-9 crisis in the United States. It has been localized so far, at least, you know, to this group of banks, one of which got into trouble and there's suspicion about whether the others are going to uh, be similarly problematic. This is quite different, in my view, from the financial crisis that we experienced in 2007-2009. But one of the things that we ought to be careful about is to make statements like, this is contained, you know, there are no circumstances here in which this is going to spill over. To me, contagion risk is ever-present. And people who will seek safety and shy away from risk will always avoid those risky bits of the financial system that they hadn't thought were so risky in the past. And of course, what we know is that there is a lot of unsupervised and unregulated risk in the non-bank financial intermediation space. And this does call into question, if banks start to lose some of their franchise, whether or not we'll see more regulatory arbitrage away from the banking system towards those parts of the financial system, and whether or not that amounts to creating more risk for the future. And You likened the problems in the US to the 1980s savings and loan crisis. And I guess there are sort of few interesting bits to take from that. One is the sort of potential for, you know, if you have a lot of regional lenders sort of struggling in the same way as they they did in the 1980s, they might become these sort of zombie banks who take sort of additional risk to try and get themselves out of the problem that they have found themselves in. If we are back to the 1980s, sort of what does that mean for us going forwards? The... Potential for zombie banks to emerge from this is if, you know, banks get support without being resolved and without having the problems that are underlying their business model being resolved. So if they're kept afloat, and we've seen this in other jurisdictions, then quite right, zombie banks will be tempted to take on more risk because they think that the risk will be backstopped by the authorities. And that is obviously not good for anybody. It's not good for those banks. It's not good for their depositors. It's not good for the economy because it will support and finance excessive risk-taking outside the banking system. I guess when you look at the intervention that policymakers made, they are apparently exploring a temporary limited deposit insurance or how they could expand deposit insurance across the US banking system. Is that the kind of support that makes you worried that banks might get support without proper attention to their structural problems? Absolutely, it does. 
I mean, just taking the narrow issue of unlimited deposit insurance, that obviously represents a cost as well as a benefit. Sure, you get the benefit of safety, but the cost you would have to pay is quite high. Contingent costs on the taxpayer, the deposit insurance fund that we set up to fund deposit insurance is a tiny relative to the size of deposits, which are about $20 trillion, half of which are not insured. So, you know, how big an insurance fund are you going to need? And what would be the cost to our banking system and therefore to our financial system and the economy of having a deposit insurance fund that would backstop that guarantee? And I think that encouraging that kind of lopsided moral hazard on the liability side of the balance sheet, uh, obviously, something that goes against the idea that you need to take risk to make money, but you shouldn't be indemnified against all risk-taking. Well, on that note, I think we will leave it there. But Dick Berner, thank you so much for joining the show. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Tom, Mike, have you found this reassuring or more troubling? Well, I'm certainly not feeling reassured by what is happening in the markets at the moment. It seems like the leveraged finance market, which provides funding to riskier ventures like private equity-backed businesses with lots of debt, has really started to seize up now. Barclays and JP Morgan have both pulled planned deals in recent days. And if that continues, it could mean choppy waters ahead outside of the banking sector too. Longer term on this question of deposit insurance that Alice, you were discussing with Dick Berner, this seems like a really hard issue to me. And I can see arguments both ways. Of course, we can't just go insulating banks from the consequences of poor risk management, but presumably the fact that shareholders will still get wiped out in the case of a failure should mitigate the moral hazard there. And more broadly, I do wonder whether the appeal of extending deposit insurance is the fact that by reassuring customers that their money is safe, it can reduce the need for the insurance to be drawn upon in the first place by reducing the likelihood of a bank run. Yeah, I find it so interesting seeing this stuff really begin to unravel after a decade plus of sort of endless discussion about where the risks in the financial system were and what we should be looking at. And I feel like one of the consensus things was that it was unlikely to be in banks. I've certainly spent a good part of the last 10 years looking at non-bank financial institutions, shadow banks, pension funds, insurers, because the banks were meant to have been fixed to some degree, or at least were considerably better capitalized. And then it rolls around and no, it's, it's banks again. And it's amazing to see how quickly the sort of setup that was established after 2008 is collapsing. I said last episode that I felt sorry for Cypriot depositors who got, you know, hosed, they got haircuts when the, the Bank of Cyprus collapsed. You've now had Switzerland extending colossal lending to make the UBS Credit Suisse acquisition work. Really, that those are already bailouts. They've already started. The government is promising to absorb some of the potential losses. It's murky to exactly how secured the loans they're offering for liquidity are. You know, they're saying that they'll take a preferential status if there's a bankruptcy hearing, which sounds like it's being done, rather than taking high quality collateral as they usually would. So, you know, we've already breached a significant amount of what we spent the last 15 years saying we wouldn't do in the space of a couple of weeks. On the question of unlimited deposit insurance as well, I think we've also entered just a completely different universe. 
whether there is going to be moral hazard. You've already had the new management of Silicon Valley Bank sort of touting to some extent the fact that they've got unlimited deposit insurance as a reason that people should deposit their funds with the bank. And I, I think with unlimited deposit insurance in general, if you imagine a company with a few million dollars to risk, but they don't really feel like losing their money, put the money in the bank, take a loan out, go wild with the loan. If it goes well, you get all the upside. If it goes badly, you're round knocking on the FDIC's door to get your money back. You've got interest to pay on the loan, but the venture is otherwise sort of completely risk-free. So the sort of behavior that this could encourage at the really sort of extreme end of things, I think really starts to look like something you don't want regulation to encourage. Now, some of the people who like the idea of unlimited deposit insurance would say, so what you need is a massively more regulated banking system. And if you're into that sort of thing, sure, that makes sense. Those positions are consistent. But the unlimited deposit insurance is already basically here. It's already on top of us. And nobody has a roadmap for the much more aggressive banking regulation, either intellectually or even more so politically. So it's a bit of an empty argument on that front. I guess the sort of bit that I, I'm sort of most interested in picking up on is this sort of question of deposit insurance. We did have Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, saying sort of on Capitol Hill on the 22nd of March that they weren't looking at sort of literally expanding deposit insurance to all banks. And I think they are trying to push back on the idea that that is what they've done. And I think that's probably because although the sort of arguments that Tom made about it's a good way of sort of preventing a run and sort of stopping yourself getting into um, a situation where you sort of have a lot of banks failing, in times when it's been done in the past, it's typically gone sort of quite badly. This sort of hypothetical bank that Mike was talking about, that is literally what happens. These banks become sort of extremely reckless. So in the 1980s sort of savings and loan crisis, you saw a lot of the same dynamics. They had a lot of fixed interest rate assets that fell in value when interest rates went up, but they weren't able to pay sort of more money on deposits. They saw a lot of deposit flight and you had a very similar dynamic to what a sort of felled Silicon Valley Bank and sort of might fell other banks in the US now. And instead of sort of getting to grips with that problem, the banking system had lost capital. Regulators sort of kicked the can down the road and sort of let these banks keep going. And they became unbelievably reckless. And because all of their equity was gone. And so you had what, as Mike was describing, the only way to get out of that hole was to take these enormously risky bets to sort of do really risky lending and to try and bet your way out of having no capital. The same thing happened with the sort of Cypriot banks ahead of the sort of Greek debt crisis. They too had run out of capital. Their deposits had been completely insured. So the taxpayers were taking the downside losses. Equity holders had already in effect been wiped out. And so they bet really aggressively on Greek debt, even as it was blowing up. And then you had this sort of catastrophic collapse of the banking system, both in Cyprus during that crisis and in the 1980s in the US, the sort of ultimate bill for the savings and loan crisis. The estimate is that it's sort of five or six times what it would have been if they just recapitalized the banks when they knew that they were on the ropes. So I understand the appeal of unlimited deposit insurance, but people have tried it in the past and typically it has gone sort of spectacularly wrong. And so I know a lot of people weren't glad to sort of see Yellen's comments yesterday uh, because they think it will sort of perpetuate the, the problem that we're in. But we are in a problem where banks who have taken on a lot of that fixed rate interest rate debt and have flighty deposits. They really have made capital losses. And we just need to own up to that and sort of not try to sort of kick the issue down the road because that will probably make things even worse. And on that cheerful note, maybe we should pivot to our stats of the week. Yes, to uh, take us away from 
the doom and gloom of financial markets, my stat of the week is six, which is the number of consecutive years that Finland has been rated the happiest country on earth. Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Iceland also all appeared in the top 10. So the Nordic economic model seems to still be going strong. Britain just scraped into the top 20 at number 19. That's worse than my home country of Australia, actually, at number 12, which makes me wonder about my life choices. Although it is palpable how much happier British people get when spring begins. Yeah, I do think there's a sort of interesting seasonality element there. I would love to see the construction of the data, but anything that tells me that Finns are happier than Australians, I'm very, very sceptical about the exact way that that's structured. But I'll I'll have to say their word for it. I'll be sceptical, but I'll, I'll believe them. My statistics of the week, depending on who you ask, either 551 or 433, And those are the numbers of years since the establishment of the longest surviving European banks still in operation. They are Monte di Paschi in Italy, which is still surviving. It's had its difficulties. It's been on the sort of endangered species list of European banks in the last few years and Berenberg Bank. So, uh, you know, people talk a lot about Credit Suisse's 167 years. Uh, That's an okay innings. But there are some guys out there who've got sort of double or triple that amount under their belt, and they're still going. Well, maybe now that Credit Suisse has been uh, absorbed by its uh, bigger brother, UBS, they can keep going for another 400 years. I guess we'll have to wait and see. My stat of the week this week is 80%, which is the share of lending that comes from small banks, so banks with less than $250 billion in assets, that is borrowed by the commercial real estate industry. So they get four-fifths of their funding from these smaller banks. And this is causing all sorts of alarm uh, in America at the moment because commercial real estate is not an industry that people think is going to fare particularly well. And they own a lot of office spaces, for example, which are in slightly less demand now than they were a few years ago. A lot of these loans are going to be rolled over this year. And now it looks like a lot of the banks that they sort of rely on for that funding are are not in great shape. So a real classic sort of money talks do mongering stat of the week from me. I love that as a sort of blind, leading the blind thing, some severely damaged financial institutions lending to one of the most sort of terminally damaged economic sectors in America, one that people don't know whether it's coming back at all. Yeah, that's a really reassuring bit of news from Alice. And with that, I want to thank Hugh Van Steenis and Richard Berner. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.